0: All right, John chapter number 17. John 17. How many have your book, Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God? How many need a book still? We are, how many need one um, to purchase? You need one to purchase. All right, we've got three, two. And um, is that it? Anybody else? All right, so I think we've got maybe two or three, five? About five, okay. Captain on, on that can help with that. You won't need it in this session. We want to make sure you're able to get one. Um, we're, we're going to be moving it along in our Sunday School series, and it helps to read this. And this is so very easy to read, very simple. And, and how many have already read at least the introduction first chapter? All right, good. Uh, that helps. And and maybe if you haven't, um, this morning will help entice you to do so. And and I love the premise of it. I love the 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 fact that someone's willing to to put something like this in print. The problem with putting things in print is it allows it to be scrutinized, and um, so you've got, you've got to you've got to be willing to to face that. And Henry Blackaby, who's now in heaven, um, he he faced that. And There's a lot. Uh, People out there, a lot of uh, websites and blogs that really go after this and to try to minimize uh, black bean, and um, because really don't they don't like the emphasis of experiential, anything experiential makes them nervous. And and um, is there wildfire? Well, sure. And uh, someone said though, I'm more concerned about no fire. We've put up with enough no fire. If we, The answer to wildfire is God's fire, and so that's, that's, the, that's the important thing. So John chapter number 17, and uh, let's look at verse number 3. Somebody with a loud voice, or lift up your voice, read verse number 3. You know We're looking at, obviously, the Bible, and we don't want to take for granted our understanding of this, even though these things are simple, but this is um, God's Word, and the Bible is God-centered. He's the author. Dr. Childs used to say it in all of our classes, many writers, but there's one author, and this is a God-centered book, and every time we open the Bible, we are face-to-face with the author. Whether you agree with Him, believe Him, all the different decisions you have to make, we're coming face to face with the author of this book. And He's going to point us to Himself. And we don't have to rely upon our own ability in order to do that. He's also given us the Holy Spirit, who's to be our teacher, and He's going to point us to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is going to point us to Jesus Christ. And so we have an agenda that God has every time we go to the Bible. And then this verse here, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Let me ask you a question. Apart from this verse, when you hear eternal life, What is typically the thought that you have concerning eternal life? How you would explain that to somebody? You're witnessing to somebody. uh, You put your faith in Christ and you tell them and you have, according to the Bible, the promise of eternal life. How do we typically describe that? Heaven, eternal, forever life. But what does John 17 verse three tell us about God's description? further detail on eternal life. What is it? It's knowing God. It's more than just quantitative eternal life in heaven. It is qualitative in knowing God. Now, I'm for everybody that gets saved and everybody we can see gets saved. In fact, we spent several hours here with our Sunday School leadership talking about that very matter of, of making sure the, uh, the, the clarity of the mandate of the gospel stays upon us, and we don't lose vision, don't lose sight of that. We want to see people saved. But can you see how, however, when we're only presenting eternal life in terms of quantitative, you take Jesus to be your Savior forever you're in heaven <laughs> That's it and we leave it at that. Can you see the shortcoming there? Can you see the the difficulty in getting people to transition from being born into God's family and now growing as God's child? Because eternal life is far more than just a ticket to heaven. Right. Amen. It is the door, the entrance into experiencing who God is. And um, so I love John 17, and of course we know if your Bible is the red letter edition there, uh, it tells you who it is that's speaking. Someone said that because God's the author, it all should be red letter. But we are understanding that this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus' prayer for you. And if you read it in this context, He wasn't just praying for His immediate disciples. He was praying for you. He's praying for me. And um, and so what he's doing is he's trying to get us to get beyond this matter of just knowing about him. Knowing God is one thing. Experiencing God is another. It was mentioned in men's prayer. I think, brother, uh, well, one, one of the men mentioned about uh, their children um, um, uh, having devotions, and we'll call it that, having devotions, hour with God, um, and, 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 I, and I thought, you know, some have, have not used to the fact, we're going to spend an hour having devotions, um, we're going to have devotions in the morning, and have devotions in the evening, well, I was sitting there thinking, this went through my mind in the men's prayer, why don't we take out the word devotion, and why don't we just say, we're going to meet with God. You, you spent an hour meeting with God? Well, he wanted longer. I didn't give him as much time as he wanted. You're going to meet with God again? Well, he was seeking me. Why wouldn't I meet with God? See, there's a big difference between having your devotions and meeting with God. People uh, are involving themselves with church who minimize just meeting God with God. And so Jesus is saying, my prayer is not that you just know me. He says, I want you to experience who I am. Meet with God. People can have services. You can run the aisles. You can swing from the chandeliers and never experience God. (laughs) Experiencing God is what this is about. You know, there was a professor of water. Did you know that there was such a thing, a professor of water? Yeah, Daniel Thomas. Of course, he did. He has an illustration, but I'm not going to ask him to give it. <laughs> <clears throat> two reasons: one, I won't understand it. Two, I won't understand it. And so, but he was a Ph.D. professor of hydrology and water. And and I. So this is not true, but this is that that is true. When I was thinking about this professor of water. No matter how much he could tell you about. The dynamics of water. Let's suppose he was out in the desert and he gets lost and he spends days out there. It turns into weeks and there's no water and he literally gets thirsty. And then he sees this oasis, sees this water supply. And he goes up to the water supply and he begins to recite his dissertation that earned him his PhD on water. Things that none of us would be able to know or understand, but things that are true about the molecular structure and dynamics of water. Now, let me ask you this question. It's very deep, but track with me. Is that going to satisfy his thirst? No. No, it's not until he drinks. Amen. And what Jesus is saying is, you can know everything there is to know about me, though it's impossible because we're finite. But even if you could, it's not until you drink that you're going to be satisfied. That's what experiencing God is all about. And so the the opening chapter he deals with the fact: Have you drank for the first time from the well of salvation? I don't want to take for granted. No, and I don't. I also don't want to put us into this well, my life hasn't changed. Maybe I need to get saved again. We wouldn't call it again, but maybe I need to really, really get saved. And you know, we've heard all kinds of statements. When somebody got saved, they got gloriously saved. There's only one way to get saved. And so sometimes we just give different descriptions, but have you gotten saved? Have you put your faith, trust, dependence upon Christ to save you? If not, you can't experience Him. You says is it even possible to be this far along and the things I've experienced, his protection, his provision, and not be saved? Well, sure. Judas Iscariot is an example of that. Yes, it's possible. It's simple to get saved, but we can't take for granted that that you are saved just because you're with others who are or that you've prayed a prayer or that you've been baptized or that you've taught others and brought others to Jesus. You must personally drink. And when you drink from the living water of Jesus Christ for salvation, then it gives you the privilege to drink from Him for satisfaction in the Christian walk as well. And so it's that... Water Jesus talked about to the woman at the well in John 4. You drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. And so the question is, have you drank from the fountain of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Have you experienced God? The premise of the book is you may know a lot about God, but have you really experienced who He is and applied who He is to your life so that He can be seen? Are you experiencing God? I believe everybody sitting in here, practically every church that I could go to, people there know about God. Every pastor's home, there are kids there that know God. But not everyone is experiencing God. That's why they're content with their life the way it is when God is not. Because they know God, but they're not experiencing God. Henry Blackaby says that when working on this book, he rejected some of the suggestions for the title of the book. One of the titles that was suggested, popular title, was Knowing God. And he says, I don't want to go with that because that implies a head knowledge about him. And I don't want people to settle with knowing about Him. But I want to say that that is what happens across the board. People have settled. I know a lot about God. Why do I need to go through discipleship? I know about God. Well, because there's more of God to be experienced. And maybe you're reflecting that you're not experiencing God. God. And even if you are reflecting, I'm experiencing God, the one who really is experiencing God, they're going to say, bring it on. Let, let's experience more of God. Amen. But the one who always has this, why do I need to, to go through discipleship? I remember years ago, a, a young lady, married lady, one that very was involved with their family, and um, while I was in evangelism and, and they'd gotten to a church and, and, uh, and I had helped recommend them getting there and, and the husband was getting involved in discipleship with another man and the wife was getting involved in discipleship with another lady. And then somebody in that, in that uh, uh, group uh, of ladies that she was getting to know, one of the ladies said to this uh, um, d- disciplee, why are you going through discipleship? That should be only for people who just get saved. And so she came out of that and saying, "I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'm not going through this. My husband can go through it. I'm not going through this. That's for people who just get saved. That would have been um, 2000 and, um, maybe 2012. Their kids got into the Christian school. Kids were starting to grow. God was changing their life. But she refused. And she, she started to find things wrong with the lady who was discipling her. Well, I know her house isn't as clean as mine. I know she isn't as good. And she just started picking apart. I know about... I, I, I taught Sunday school in the church I was at before we came here. We came here because I really felt like my husband needed this and my kids need this. And today, they're divorced, and every one of the kids have the scar of the world. Heartbreak. You say, well, you may not know, no, that's my sister. And she knew God, but she wasn't experiencing God. Eternal life does not merely refer to an existence that lasts forever. After all, everyone will live eternally in heaven or hell. To receive eternal life then is to enter into the divine realm with the goal of experiencing an intimate relationship with God through Jesus, a relationship that will grow throughout our lifelong journey and then into eternity. It is the uninterrupted, deepening knowledge and experience of God. This word... No in John 17.3 is the Greek word gnōsko, And it's the present tense. And there's a difference between gnōsko, no, and adon would be the other word that would have the idea of objective truth. Um, 1 John, there's a lot of objective no. Know this. First no, um, John 5.13, uh, These things have I written unto you that you may... No, it's Adon. That would be, you know it, object. How do you know you have eternal, how do I know I have eternal life? 1 John five thirteen. because I know what he says about it. He that hath the son hath life. light. That's all I need to know. But John 17, 3 is Gnosko. I've said it enough to see um, now who has been paying attention. Where would be another famous Gnosko passage? Who else talked about knowing experientially outside of the preacher? Yeah, there you go. Yes, go ahead, Dan. Yep, that I may know him. Was Paul praying the sinner's prayer again after he's written m- most of the New Testament? No, no, he was saying, I just want to keep knowing. Wanna- I-, I know about him. I've just written half the New Testament about him. He says, I want to experientially know him, the power of his resurrection. And so it's the same, same word. Jesus says, I, I'm praying that you would experientially, experientially know. And that's the purpose for which we are created. The idea of knowing is one of experience. You cannot really know something without experiencing it. And you're, you may be sitting there thinking, "Well, no, no, I, I, think you, I think you can know without experiencing. Well, that would be the Greek's way of knowing. The Greeks would would say, if you're going to know something, it requires intensive study, and you can know about it. A Greek would say, I can know what it means to be a father without ever being a father. But the Hebrew, the Jews, the only way of knowing when they talked about knowing was to experience it. Jesus being a Hebrew, a Jew, he understood knowing something entailed you have to experience I knew what it meant to be a father before being a father, but I really knew about being a father after becoming a father. You could not truly say, you know Jesus. Even if you're saved, even if you're a child of His, if you're not experiencing Jesus. I love what he says on page 10. Merely knowing about God will leave you unsatisfied. Merely knowing about God will leave you unsatisfied. Truly knowing God only comes through experience as He reveals Himself to you through His Word and as you relate to Him. Let me stop right there. There's a I'm gonna finish this quote, but I think that's that is what sets apart people who come into a discipleship setting and said, well, you know, I just didn't get around to filling out my stuff here. I didn't get around to doing that, and, and uh, I just didn't do Or I did it. I filled it all out. I got it all there, and I'm and, um, can we check this off? Can I get my certificate? Can I move on? And it, you're, you're content with knowing about Him. Right. You know enough about Him to make you satisfied, but you're not satisfied. That's why there's no peace. That's why there's no power. That's why there's no joy. That's why there's no, uh, no witness. There's no fruit. Well, I'm one of those sneaky, fruit-bearing Christians. There's no secret service Christians with God. Truly knowing God, Blackaby says, only comes through experience as He reveals Himself to you through His Word and as you relate to Him. Throughout the Bible, we can see that God took the initiative to disclose himself to people through their life events. And then he moves into the significance of names. And, and if you have not done uh, a study on names in the Bible, uh, and you don't have to do the study, if you have your Christwalk Journal, you can revel in the names of God every single day. Del Carnegie. that name sound familiar? Uh, He, the legendary author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. He once said, A person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. We heard about that yesterday in our uh, teacher um, uh, Bible fellowship seminar, the the importance of saying people's names and and recalling that. In other words, you're, you're, you're saying to that person, there's value. If you want to leave a positive impression, Carnegie would say, make them feel noticed, important, and valued, say their name. And in the Bible, names were very significant. It, it reflected something about them. And especially when it comes to God's name. Here's a just an illustration here, a 200-year-old church was being readied for the, an anniversary celebration when calamity struck. The bell ringer was uh, called out of town. And so the pastor was immediately uh, in search and sending out, uh, noticed people to see if we could find somebody to step in. And ring the bell, this 200-year-old bell. And when the replacement arrived, the pastor took him to the steps that led to the bell tower, some 150 feet above them. So round and round they went, and huffing and puffing all the way. And just as they reached the landing, the the uh, the bell ringer tripped and fell face first into the biggest bell of all. And it was just this bong, and just loud and. Well, dazed by the blow, the bell ringer stumbled backward onto the landing. The railing broke loose. He fell to the ground. But fortunately, miraculously, he was unhurt, only stunned. But the pastor thought it was best to call for an ambulance. And so when the, uh, the, the um, first responders got there, they asked, Do you know the man's name? And the pastor replied, No, but his face sure rings a bell. And so I got to fill the time somehow just to transition. Let's go to Genesis 22 and look at a name. Genesis 22, we remember, this is the great passage in which God was developing Abraham's character. And the Bible says in Genesis 22 and verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, the Word tempt is the idea of testing there. He wasn't setting him up to fail, he was setting him up. In order that he might uh, expand his horizon of knowing God, he said to Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And, um, or God said, Abraham, and Abraham's response is, Here am I. And, and I think a lot of this experiencing God begins right there. God is trying to speak but we're nowhere to be found. If God's going to speak, he's got to do it on the run because we sure are fast. We like the daily bread digest of spending time with God. It's hardly it's hardly enough to even know something about him, much less to, much less experience God. But the song Take Time to Be Holy, do we even sing that song? Is that in our hymnal? Are you familiar with the song Take Time? But I don't know when the last time it was we sang that but I don't think we sing it in many places. It's not in ours. Yeah, see, we don't even want to take time to put it in the hymnal to sing the song. We just don't even have time to take. But it's just time, and time is what we... I don't, we don't have time for God. But Abraham's response was, here I am. And God put Abraham's faith to the test. It was a faith crisis. That's what Abraham experienced. It was a faith crisis. I believe every time you open the Bible, it's designed to be a faith crisis. Every invitation we have is a crisis of faith. In other words, what are you going to do about it? Are we going to start out with, at the beginning, here I am. I used to would do in meetings, revival meetings, just depending upon how the Lord was leading. But I would ask before we ever even open up the Bible, how many would say right here, right now, if God speaks to you, regardless of what it is God speaks to you, you will right now go on record before God and those around you to say, I'm all in. I will respond to God. I will obey Him implicitly and immediately without hesitation. And someone says, why would you do that? Because that's what God asked for before God gets into what He's going to do to make your life the best it could possibly be. And Abraham, and all God said was, Abraham? Mm -hmm. And Abraham said, "All right, God, before you go any further, I need you to to fill out for me this form and, um, and you tell me what you have in mind and I'll tell you whether or not I'm good with this. All God said was Abraham and Abraham said, I'm all in. And because of that, God is then able to do something. Abraham was known as what? A few things. But what comes to mind when you think of what does the Bible tell us Abraham was known as? Friend of God? What else was he title-wise? He would have never been that had he not said, here I am, and meant it. See, God was preparing him for This matter of being that father of many. not Having a son was not enough. He tried to hijack God's plan before he had his son. He could have hijacked it afterwards. It required this matter of not just being content with knowing about him. God wanted him to experience him. Until this time. Abraham knew God by the experience as God Almighty. That's how Abraham knew God, God Almighty. For God in His almightiness, miraculously, He provided a son when it was humanly impossible. It's a privilege to experience God as God Almighty. We could have testimony upon testimony from sitting right here, those who would say, I've experienced God's protection. I've experienced the almighty power of God. But God now wanted to expand Abraham's understanding and Abraham's experience of who he is. And so in verses 1 through 3, we find in verse 2, God says, now, here's what I have in mind. I want you to take your son, only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him therefore a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, clave the wood for the burnt offering, rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Now, how would you have responded just to that test? Abraham got up early in the morning. He obeyed. How? Immediately. He avoided partial obedience and delayed obedience and he followed God boldly into the unknown. Just think about the things you have been given. How have you responded? In then verses 4 through 6. When Abraham and Isaac reached the mountain, notice what Abraham told his servants. In verse number 5, Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. You Abraham is saying, the boy and I, we're going to go, and then we're coming back to you. Somehow Abraham believed that he would be coming back down the mountain with Isaac. Why? Not because he's just wishful and optimistic and, and, and couldn't bear to, to think of life without his son. No, he's going off of what God had promised. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 and verse 19 that somehow Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. If he's going to put his son to death... I don't know how God's going to do it. God provided when it was humanly impossible to have a son. And God can somehow miraculously, as the God Almighty, provide by bringing my son back to life. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I'm telling you, God's up to something. We're going to see God work. And so he told the servants, we're going to go yonder. We're going to worship. And you never worship until you start out like Abraham did in verse 1. Here I am. And here he's coming back. He says, we're going to be back. Don't know how, but we're going to be able to point again and say, praise God to whom all blessings flow, God Almighty. Abraham trusted God's promise that Isaac would continue the line of blessing, even if the fulfillment of that, it took another miracle. By the way, it's the same resurrecting power that brought Isaac into the world that would somehow keep him in the world. And that's all Abraham was doing. He knew God as God Almighty. The truth is, we don't know all that Abraham was thinking. I think Blackaby even uses that phrase. We don't know all that he was thinking. But we can surmise some things they may have been thinking. Have you ever seen somebody do something and, and, and you're kind of in awe? You're watching, whether it's an athletic feat, whether it was a heroic event, and you wonder what went through their mind. In fact, that's what the questions are a lot of times. What were you thinking? You ever listen to the, the sports reporters asking the athletes questions? They're some of the dumbest questions. Yeah. You know, asking the boxer, what were you thinking? I was thinking, I wish he'd stop hitting me in the face is what I was thinking, you know. Um, what were you thinking when you're running down the field with the ball? Thinking, I'd like to score the touchdown. What do you you think we're thinking? But there's a lot of times wonder. I've wondered with reading biographies or autobiographies and heroic events and men of valor and things that would have been just hard to fathom, much less somebody experienced something. And I wonder, were they afraid? Did they experience fear? Did they think, or were they just? So dumb that they didn't even consider all those factors. And, but what was going through their mind? Abraham? Did you even know what was being asked? Yeah, he understood very clearly because God told it to him in verse 2. All right. But what were you thinking? page 12, Henry Blackaby says this, Clearly, Abraham trusted God to provide everything he needed for the imminent sacrifice. He acted on his belief that God was the provider. He did what God told him to do. When God saw that Abraham did not merely claim to have faith in him, but that he was willing to act out his trust through obedience in this excruciating task, what did God do? Well, he stopped Abraham, and he provided a ram for the sacrifice instead. There's a great principle here, and that is after God tests us, God will reveal himself to us in a new way. Jesus taught that in John 14, verses 21 through 23. Verse 13 of Genesis 22, we find that God provided that ram And notice, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. The ram must have been there the entire time. But Abraham didn't notice it until God wanted to reveal it. While Abraham walked up one side of the mountain with his problem, God had arranged so that the other side of the mountain was coming that was his answer. However, the answer was not revealed. Abraham did not see the answer until obedience was complete. God's never stopped working that way in your life or mine. Notice the next verse in verse number 14, and Abraham called the name of that place Say it with me, Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Up until this time, Abraham's knowledge and experience of God was, he's God Almighty, but because he acted in true, genuine trust and obedience He's now received a new revelation of who God is, and he's able, why Why? why this new revelation? Because he can experience now the Jehovah-Jireh dynamic of God. The name Jehovah-Jireh means the Lord will see to it, or the Lord will provide. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, Uh, Now, the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, as it was later changed to. But Hudson Taylor used to hang in his home a plaque with two Hebrew words on it. It was Ebenezer and Jehovah-Jireh. Ebenezer means, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That's 1 Samuel 7 and verse 12. And Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will see to it. And so that Hudson Taylor, whether he looked back or he was looking ahead, he knew that the Lord was at work and he had nothing to fear. The Lord will help us. The Lord will provide. And that ram was God's provision for Isaac just as Jesus Christ is God's provision for the world. Now, don't miss it. I'm going to say it again. God showed Abraham the ram when Abraham did what God had said. Amen. That's why you're in church and you've blamed everything, everybody else, but taken responsibility for why you're not satisfied. I've had people say, you don't know how, how, how miraculous it is that I'm even still in church. Really? You don't know how how great of a miracle it is that my kids are in church. Really? God's not settling with that. You don't know how miraculous it is that you can even experience God. Quit being the victim and start being the the humble, repentant one and recognize that God is up to something, but God's not going to force you. God's not going to dominate your life without your permission, but He's going to give you some tests. He's going to put a crisis there to really show in the bible says that god says to abraham now i know i know that you believe me god knew before abraham was ever even born and when he's saying i know he's not saying good i was well, i was hoping abraham you believe me oh i'm so glad to find this out no what he's saying is this isn't for me abraham this is for you He's just talking to him in terms of human terminology. This test is not for me, Abraham. God would say, I'm God regardless of what you do. This is for you. Will you trust and obey? I have seen people make a mess of their life with a lot less severe situation at hand. Lean into their own understanding for a lot less things than this. Um. You know, he's talking about my son. i got to sacrifice my son. i got to... That, that, you know, it's just not going to happen. And we can go somewhere else where they don't expect that much. I, I, I've not read the Bible yet where I don't find where God always means complete, total, absolute abandonment of self and total surrender, faith, and trust to Him. From Genesis 1... All the way to Revelation 22. God is serious. It's just that we don't seem to be as serious about God. That's why invitations, they're important. Because it's God saying, hey, I'm up to something. That's what Henry Blackaby is getting at. And he says over and over, God's always at work. God's always at work. It's just, are you going to get to where he's at work? Well, that's what I got to do. I, I got to get, get to a Bible college. I got to move to a place. I got to get somewhere else. Oh, well, It's not geography. Amen. It's your heart. Amen. Yeah. And, and, and we find the same with Moses. I'm not going to get into Moses' life, but he did the same thing. Moses in Exodus 3, and you read this in the book and you read this in your Bible, he, he revealed to Moses a name that the people of God had not yet been acquainted with. And the whole purpose of this was not that they would know another, that they could put it on their, their resume as the people of God, but he wanted them to experience God in this greater way. God showed Abraham. God showed Moses. And God will show you Amen. when you obey implicitly, and explicitly. How can I, how could I do what Abraham did by depending upon who Abraham depended upon? Amen. And Abraham had less than what you have. He didn't have the whole Bible. He couldn't go to the New Testament to find out what some of that meant. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't do those things. He, he didn't have what you and I have, but he did have enough. He had God's word. And we have the completion of that. And so let me ask you this. When it comes to this matter of experiencing God, can you give testimony of how you've experienced God in the area of God's enabling and God's provision? And and there's no doubt you can point to things. But as we look at the end of the chapter, and if you see the end there of uh, black to be puts a lot of things. And this would be similar to what you have in your Christ Walk journal. He gives a list of, of names and titles, names that God has revealed himself to us by. Job 16, 19, my witness. John 6, 35, bread of life. And you see this on page 15 of your book and it goes through uh, page 16. So witnessing, bread of life, comfort in sorrow, Um, We know these things, but what he's saying is, have you experienced them? Um, Let me turn my page here. My hope, wonderful counselor, defender of widows, the strength of my salvation, faithful and true, our Father, a sure foundation, my friend, almighty God, God of all comfort. God who avenges me, God who saves me, our guide, our head, head of the church, our help, my hiding place, a great high priest, holy one in your midst, righteous judge, king of kings, our life, light of life, Lord of lords, Lord of the harvest, mediator, our peace, Prince of Peace, my Redeemer, Refuge and Strength, my Salvation, my Help, the Good Shepherd, Lord, my Stronghold, my Support, Good Teacher. And that's really just a few. I think we would all, all of us could put our name by by one of those and we could fill up every one of those mentioned and and we could say we cover in this room knowing these things. But that's not why God reveals them. He reveals them so you can experience these. Which means that there's not a problem that you face but what God is the solution. There's not a problem. There's not a problem but what God is the solution, and He doesn't want it to be ethereal. He, he wants it to be experiential. Yes. Remember the message Wednesday night? Anybody recall? That was a long time ago. <laughs> Anybody? I have preachers come in and say, two years ago I preached on this message. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I should preach on it. Rem- they don't remember three days ago. They're not going to remember two years ago. Preach it again. What, is, uh, what was the, the premise of Wednesday night? All right, those were, that was the title and that was the, what we ought to do. What was the premise behind practicing the presence of God and seeking His face? What, was, what is it we're looking for? His presence. Because in the presence of God, we seek His face to find His presence. In His presence everything, everything is found in the presence of God, everything. If Judas Iscariot could walk in the very physical presence of Jesus, touch him and die and go to hell, so can you. He went to hell because he would not get in. And it's still possible when you get saved to say, this is far as I go. And, and you, can, you can say, look at my history of Christianity and fundamentalism. Look at what I used to do. Look at what I've done. It's important. It's so very important to, to start right, to run right, but to finish right. And Paul tells us, I ran out of course before I ran out of race. I've I've done everything God's given me to do. But a lot of people, their race is run, but there was more course. God takes them home, but there was more to be done. They left it undone. Why? Because they didn't experience God. This is not difficult. It's so simple. And it's so simple that it can be missed. But that was Jesus' message. That's where he lost the multitude. He was talking about eating his flesh, drinking his... He was talking about experiencing Jesus, experiencing him. And and this was too hard. They said it was too hard. You believe that Jesus was just too hard. His preaching was too hard. What he said was too hard. No, it's that they really thought he would allow less in being a disciple. But it's about knowing him. Lord, thank you for the privilege. Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you experientially. What I discovered of you yesterday is not enough to satisfy you or me today. Lord, I want to know you today. I want to know you. I want my family to know you. I want my church family to know you. But more importantly, and greater than that, you want to be known. And we thank you that we can experience you. And I pray that we would, none of us would settle with less than the satisfaction, the deep, overflowing, joy-bursting, life-filled, knowing, experiencing you. So revive us, deepen us, awaken us. Create within us the steadfast, unmovable mindset that comes from experiencing you. And that way we'll always abound in that life eternal, quantitative, qualitative, abundant, victorious, not I, but Christ's life. We love you. Thank you, all thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen.